beloved congregation of the Lord. Assimilation is a process whereby someone who immigrants from one country joins another country, tries to pursue citizenship in that adopted country, and then gradually is changed in his cultural practices, in his habits, in his language, to conform, to fit in with his adopted nation. Some of us, even in our own family histories, we can remember what it was like to uproot from one country and to be acclimatized to another, often a difficult and a painful process requiring sacrifice and sometimes even years before one is assimilated to the new country. Now, when things indifferent, like clothing, like speech, like what you eat, that can have its place. Assimilation can be right and proper. But it's another thing entirely when it comes to assimilating into the sins of your adopted nation. Adopting not just their customs and language, but their religion, if it be a false religion, an idolatrous religion. That is forbidden to the true child of God. We are to be separated. We are to be unique. Those who can never be assimilated to such things. And yet, there is a sense in which every Christian feels the pressure to assimilate. If you are a Christian, your true identity is found in Christ Jesus. He has died for you. He has risen for you. He has gone to heaven to prepare a place for you. Your place is not here. It is with him. Your home is not here. Your citizenship is in heaven. That is who you are, your true identity, Christian. And yet the devil in this world would seek to for, cause you to forget this, to conform you to the pattern of this sinful world and to the ways of it, to assimilate you so that you forget that this is not your home. Such is the great purpose of this book of the Bible, First Peter, as we have considered it for a number of months now. The great burden of the Apostle Peter, you see, was to speak to those Christians scattered about Asia Minor. We call it modern-day Turkey. But in those days, the Christians, as indeed that part of the world now, the Christians are a minority, so also they were at that time. And there was a great pressure to conform to the standards and the beliefs and the practices of their surrounding host culture. And so the apostle speaks to them as strangers and pilgrims. This comes up a number of places in this book that they would understand that their home is that eternal land of heaven. But yes, this world in truth belongs to God as its creator. And yet we are destined for the world to come when all things are made new in Christ Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth are inaugurated. 
But living in this present evil world, we must not. We must not be conformed to it. We must see that we are on a journey. And all of our spiritual disciplines, all of our devotion, all of our worship is to bring us into that awareness of our true identity in Christ Jesus. So it is that this has been the great theme of the first chapter. And as we've considered in the second chapter, he revolves again to the central focus. The person of Christ defines the Christian. Verse 4, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Christ is the living stone. The living stone. What does this refer to? Well, listen to what Dr. John Gill says. Christ is called the living stone because he has life in himself as God as mediator and as man and communicates life to others as natural life to all creatures and spiritual and eternal life to his people whose great privilege it is to come to him. Christ as the author of life, the one with life, who gives life, is this great theme of the Bible. John 5, verse 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given the Son to have life in himself. John 6, verse 35, As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he, hath, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. John 11, verses 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. John 14, verse 19, because I live, he shall live also. Life is found with Jesus Christ. That true life which is necessary to remember our identity. To be the true pilgrims headed for that eternal city. We look unto Christ Jesus, and it is Christ Jesus, the living stone, that we now direct our attention to. With the Lord's help, we will consider three thoughts here under the theme, Christ, the living stone. We will see in the first place the excellency of Christ, second, the rejection of Christ, and third, coming to Christ. First, the excellency of Christ, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Well, children, Christ here is described as a stone, a stone, you know, a rock. Maybe this past week, maybe you were walking in your backyard or maybe walking in the path with mom and dad in the woods and, and you stop and you look and, and there's this huge rock. You walk up to it and you put your feet upon it. It doesn't break when you stand upon it, does it? No, it's strong. It supports you. It holds you up. You know, I bet 
If you were to come back in a week or a month or a year, there is the rock, unchanging, unmoved, strong and fixed. This is a common expression of Christ, that he is a stone, that he is a rock, denoting his strength and his his ability to support the weight of his people. Maybe you remember that Peter, the author of this book, 1 Peter, that he received this name, Peter, which means rock, in specific reference to an illustration like this. You remember he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? He said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my father which is in heaven. And I say that thou art Peter, which means rock, giving him his name. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates will not prevail against it. Now, people have argued, well, what is that rock on which Jesus says he will build his church? What rock will support the weight of the church? Well, some, like Roman Catholics, say it's Peter himself that is the rock. A strange argument, because if you look at the Greek, it's actually a different word for rock that Jesus uses later on in that verse to describe the rock upon which he'll build his church. But, but also you need to remember that Peter had just confessed faith in the living Son of God. It was that confession of Christ as the Son that Jesus referred to as the rock upon which he would build his church. And so Peter, now speaking for himself, contradicts the Roman Catholic interpretation and directs us not to himself as the support for that rock. No, not to any mere man, but to Christ himself. Christ, the living stone. And in this section from verses 4 to 12, a number of references come up here to Christ as the support, the strength of his church, drawing upon a number of passages that refer to rocks. In particular, there's definitely references to Psalm 118 that uh, you can see, for example, in verse 8. Um, where you read there, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumbled at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were appointed. And we'll go up again, verse 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. What is going on here? Well, the excellency of Christ, his supreme worth, majesty, and glory is set forth here in the picture of a cornerstone. Now, especially in those days when you were to construct a building or a great structure, you would want to have all those different stones aligned. You don't want to have this building project where people just bring all these rocks and they're not straight, they're not uh, working together in order to support the overall structure. So what you would do is you would 
pick a particularly strong stone, one that was usually chosen not only for its strength, but for its beauty. And this would be laid right at the corner of the foundation of the building. All the other stones, you see, they would be leaned up against it as they are fixed in their particular place. So all the other stones, you see, they take their shape around this, the cornerstone, laid first, laid in a position of prominence, chosen for its beauty, chosen for its strength. And so it is that Christ is the cornerstone of his church. The church will not be destroyed by the gates of hell, nor can the gates of hell prevail against the church because Christ is the strength of his church, the mediator, the savior, the son of God. He is the one who preserves his people. In order to emphasize this, there is a citation from Psalm 118. And children, you remember how it was that we introduced this in our scripture reading. That psalm was commemorating that point at which David was anointed king over all Israel. David, the chosen of God, chosen when he was just that little shepherd boy, defending his father Jesse's sheep from the bears and from the tigers and from the lions. There he is, and God chooses him. He chooses him from all the other sons of Jesse, the, the runt of the litter. He sends his prophet Samuel, and he says, this is my chosen one. This champion of the Lord, he's chosen from that young age, and he's set apart. Set apart to be the shepherd of his people Israel. The people were slow in receiving him. Initially, indeed, the king Saul seeks to kill him and to destroy him, but just winds up making him more powerful. And in Saul's death, you have the kingdom of Judah. They actually anoint him as their king, but there is now a civil war because the other tribes of Israel, they anoint Ishbosheth, who's from the family of Saul, to replace him in this bloody civil war. You can read about it in 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, its place in the history of the people of God. But in 1st Chronicles 11, you see how it is that finally the war ceases for all the tribes. They come together and they say unto David, he is bone of our bone, he is flesh of our flesh. He is our rightful king. He is from the stock of Judah. And so they make him the rightful king. And what does he do? Well, he sets about with the combined powers of the tribes to reclaim that ancient city of Jerusalem from the Gentile nations. He claims it in the name of the Lord. And what does he do? Well, he walks through those gates as a conquering king, walks through the gates of the city, and he claims it as the inheritance of the Lord, as the Lord's anointed one. And you read about this, how he reflects upon it in Psalm 118, a beautiful psalm from beginning to end, glorying in the wonderful goodness of the Lord. 
But then we read in verse 19 of Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into, go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, this interpretation which I'm offering is confirmed by the first century Aramaic paraphrase of the Hebrew Bible written by Jews in the first uh, century in order to give you an idea of how the ancient Jews interpreted it. So they interpreted those words, open the gates of righteousness, as open to me the gates of the city of righteousness. So the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And what about those words, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner? Well, they are the Targum. It paraphrases that in this way. The child the builders despised was among the sons of Jesse and deserved to be appointed a king and a governor. You see, the ten uh, or the, the majority of the tribes, excepting the tribe of Jesse, they looked at David and said, he's just a lowly shepherd. He doesn't come from a, a royal line. Yes, he may be an accomplished hero, maybe the slayer of Goliath, but no, we're not going to choose this one as our king. We, we are wiser than the prophet of God, Samuel. We are wiser than God himself. We will choose Ishbosheth as our king. And so David pronounces that this stone which they had refused David. He has now become the cornerstone. He will be the foundation of the new revitalized kingdom. Now that the Jerusalem has been purged of the ungodly influence of the Gentile nations, now indeed it can be the foundation of the revitalization of the worship of God, the reformation of the church of God, the rule and reign of God among his people. David is God's chosen instrument for good, you see. And yet, and yet, that was not the end. Indeed, this is a partial fulfillment of this uh, psalm. Indeed, the immediate fulfillment as it was written. Listen to what Dr. Gill says. He was refused of all the tribes but Judah. Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, was set up the throne was set upon the throne, though afterwards all Israel and Judah united in making David king. He doubtless was a type of Christ. And there was some shadow of what is here said in him. So what is a type? Well, this is where you have something in the Old Testament which is ultimately fulfilled, ultimately pointing to the person and work of Christ. Yes, we can say that there's a literal fulfillment in the days of David, but also a greater and a grander fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. This is ultimately not about the excellence of David. It's about the excellency of Christ. 
and we compare all things together. So it is that Jesus himself refers to this in the days of his own ministry as the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, were opposing him, resisting him, rejecting him. He says in Matthew 21, verse 42, Did ye never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Christ is the one who is ultimately spoken of here. Christ is God's chosen king. He is the true anointed of God, anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure in order to be the only Savior, the only Redeemer. John Gill writes again, Christ is exalted above all. He is the head of principalities and powers, the angels. He is made higher than the kings of the earth and is head of the body, the church, and head both of eminence and influence. Consider those words that are cited there in 1 Peter chapter 2 to go back there again. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. The word precious describes having great honor, great worth, to be desirable, to be worthy, to be desired. It speaks of the innate and inestimable worth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's bound up with, you see, that he is chosen of God. He is elect, chosen. So it is in Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17. He is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead and in all thing, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. You see, as Christ is the head of the church, as he is the cornerstone upon which the church is built up, he does this all unto the glory of God. Where we would bring glory to God, you see, it is where we are fastened to Christ. Not that every Christian can sing the song, I did it my way, wandering in our own wisdom, doing things the way you think best. No, you are a Christian. Conform unto the cornerstone Christian. Align with him. Draw your strength and life from him. Draw your beauty and worth from him. God is supremely pleased with his beloved Christ, and he is well pleased with us when we are well pleased with Christ where we rest in Christ by faith, 
where we receive him in faith, where we draw all things from him. We take our place as stones in the great structure of the church of Jesus Christ, that great structure of all true believers, which is appointed to bring glory unto his name. Here it is. Is this how you view Christ this morning? Do you have small thoughts of Christ? Do you regard him as just another side piece in your life, an accessory? Or is he Lord of all? Does he have the preeminence? Is he the cornerstone of your life? Without him, you crumble into nothingness. With him, there is support, there is strength, there is life. Christ, the living stone. Let me speak for a moment about rejection of Christ. It's in the text, isn't it? To whom coming as a living stone disallowed indeed of men. Disallowed of men. This word denotes rejection, refusal. There are men, you see, who see Christ's preeminence. They see it revealed in the gospel of grace. They read about it in the word of God. They hear about it in the preaching of Christ's servants. And yet their word is rejected. Rejected. Who is this referring to? Well, we saw, didn't we, that there was a kind of refusal, a kind of rejection of David by the tribes of Israel before he was made king. But so also in the days of Christ himself. Turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, where you have that event in which um, Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin, before the priests and elders of the Jews. And there we read in Acts chapter 4 and verse 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. He's speaking about a great miracle that had just been happened. Verse 11, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, of you builders. You've set at naught the stone. You've rejected the stone. You've refused the stone, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Who are the builders? Well, they were the leaders of the Jewish people. They, on behalf of their nation, rejected Christ in a similar way as. Their fathers had rejected David, the Lord's anointed, so they rejected the son of David. What did they speak about him? And they say, well, isn't this just Joseph's son? Isn't this just the carpenter? What did they say of him? Didn't they say, well, why is it that he claims to forgive sins? Who can forgive sins but God only? 
What did they say of him? Well, yes, he, he casts out devils, but you see, he casts out devils by the spirit of Beelzebub. What did they say of him? Well, they said, well, yes, he's kind and he's generous to the down and out, but, but you see that actually speaks against him because you see he's a friend of publicans, tax collectors, and sinners. What do they say of him? Well, he comes from Nazareth. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? What did they say of him? They said that he speaks blasphemy, for he claims to be the Son of God. How often do they take up stones to stone him? How often do they try to trap him in their own words? And so it was that they hatched their scheme and they sought to deliver him over to the Gentiles, to deliver him over to the Romans. They accused him of exciting rebellion. They accused him of saying that you should not pay taxes, filthy lies. And so it was. It was that he was delivered over to the Gentiles. Didn't Herod, he tried. He tried, not Herod, but Pilate. Pilate, rather, tried to help Jesus. And he said, well, who would you rather I release? Would you rather have Barabbas, the murderer and the thief, or would you have Jesus? And what did they say? They said, give us Barabbas. What did he say? Then Pilate said, I can find no fault with him. I wash my hands of the blood of this just man. See to it. And what do they say? His blood be upon us and upon our children. Crucify him, they said. Oh, they led Jesus all the way to the cross. They refused, refused this stone which had been chosen of God, this precious stone, this most worthy of stones. Even there on the cross, enduring the agonies for sins as he prays, he prays for those who crucify him, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What do they say? If he is the son of God, let him come down from the cross, again rejecting him, scorning him. Oh, do not think that you and I are any better by nature. The truth is that the words of Isaiah, they are, they are replayed again and again. Isaiah 53, verse 2. There is no loveliness in him that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So it was with the Jews of Jesus' own day, but so also with sinners today. The preaching of Christ, a crucified Savior, the Son of God come in our flesh. It continues to be despised, continues to be rejected. Many hear of the gospel, and they would say, that is not for me. That's only for the super religious people, only for a select club of people called Christians. It's their private belief. They can keep it to themselves. Well, well, no, it's not true. Everything and everyone that has ever happened, that has ever been born, that shall ever exist on this creation, it's all about Christ. 
everyone and everything, they will glorify Christ, either in their salvation or in their damnation, either being, being clothed in his righteousness, presented before the Father on the day of judgment, or else they will be vessels of wrath, appointed to wrath, perishing under the wrath of Jesus, the judge of all the earth. He is the cornerstone. He is all preeminence. You can't get away from him. You can't evade him. You can't ignore him. Even people in the church despising, rejecting the chief cornerstone. You think you can find your true religion, your true peace in anything else, but you are utterly deceived, my friend. You may come here to think, well, you know, it's just another Sunday. I'm just going through the motions. No, my friend, you are without Christ today if you are an unbeliever, if you've not trusted in him and where God has made him the cornerstone. You have no right to refuse him. Do not follow in the way of destruction, not in the way of hell and damnation. No, a much better way is set forth here. Let me speak about that, coming to Christ, coming to Christ, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, coming to Christ. Indeed, that word coming it is actually a technical word It is often used of the Levites, who would especially approach the sacrifices in the, um, in the formal worship of God, as that Greek word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's how it's used. And it's also a favorite word of the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. He uses this word coming, coming, as that approach of the heart and soul unto the fullness of of the Savior. Hebrews 4, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 7, and verse 25, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I would see two things here. Really, there's the initial coming to Christ. Well, you can't be someone who is coming to Christ if you never start to come. What does the Bible tell you today? It is that you don't hesitate. You don't wait for a more seasonable time. No, the authority of the word of God tells you this morning, come to Christ. He is willing to receive you. The worst of sinners, the most ignorant of sinners, the most powerless of sinners, the weakest, the most frail, they all have the one command, come unto Christ. His utter willingness to receive, receive any sinner. His utter love, dying on the cross, being rejected of men, receiving the scorn of sinners as the man of sorrows. Why? so that you may come to Christ. If you've never come to Christ, then this is the day that you must. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. With all the authority of Jesus Christ, I, as his ministers, say, come to Christ today. 
Receive him utterly, not just as another part of your life, but as your cornerstone, as the one who must have all preeminence in your life. Surrender all to him. See that all sufficiency is found in Christ. See that all loveliness, all worthiness is found with him. See that God will be glorified today in your finally coming to the Lord. There's an initial coming, but also a continual coming. That's really the primary thought here as well. To whom coming? Coming. This is an ongoing action. It's a regular habit of the Christian. You don't just come to Christ once and say, I've come to him, therefore I'm done with him. No, it's, it's every day. Every day you see your need for him. As a pilgrim in this world, Do you want to resist the assimilation into the ways of wickedness? You come to Christ today and and you say, Lord, today I need wisdom for how I'm to live. Today, Lord, I am weak and falling into temptation. I need your strength. Today, O Lord, my conscience is afflicted by my sins that I've committed. And you bring your burdens and cares to Christ. Every day, the Christian who is not drawing their life from the living stone, is withering and decaying. Didn't we hear recently that he is the vine and we are the branches? Without him we can do nothing. So the same truth spoken here. Christ, the living stone, to whom we must continually be coming. Today, where we would hear this word, may we glory in the awesome power and grace of the Lord that he would visit us with his supreme purpose and plan of salvation in the person of Christ Jesus. To him belongs all power, glory, and grace. Amen.